I'm Edaena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Storytelling is not just something for the movies or television. It plays an important role in how we interact with applications and brands through our phones and the web. Rachel Neighbors, award-winning cartoonist and web developer, compares storytelling through comics with storytelling on the web. We talked about the different areas of design and web animation. Rachel is a program manager at Microsoft and just released her book titled Animation at Work. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Rachel Neighbors, program manager at Microsoft's Edge browser, also web animation expert and award-winning cartoonist, is joining us today. Rachel, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Adena. Thank you. You've told stories through comics since you were very young. How do you compare storytelling with words and pictures to storytelling on the web? Surprisingly, they have a lot in common. Now, there are three books by this, this giant in comics. His name is Scott McCloud. He started with writing Understanding Comics, which I feel like any user experience designer or even a developer has to build things for people should give it a read because it's all about narrative flow and how people perceive words and pictures together. And what more is the internet than a collection of words and pictures, right? I mean, when you're not thinking about the interaction component of it. The other two books he wrote were Redefining Comics and Making Comics. Making Comics is a great book if you want to learn how to make comics. Like, that's the number one question people ask me is, how do I make comics too? And I say, just go read that book, it's great. Mm -hmm. But Redefining Comics was ahead of its time I remember reading about things like micropayments, and uh, he coined the term infinite canvas. He anticipated that people would draw comics on tablets, like we're seeing now with the Surface and the iPad, and that they would share them in what he called the infinite canvas of the web. And at one point during my web development career, I started seeing all these APIs coming out, you know, voice recognition, text-to-speech, Uh, web animation APIs, CSS animations and transitions. And I realized, wow, it really is the infinite canvas. A lot of Scott's predictions are finally coming true many years after he published that book. So if you're into tech and you want to think about what the future might hold, that is also a good book to read. Around what time roughly did this book come out? I have no idea. It was probably when I was in my early 20s, mm -hmm. so over a decade ago, okay. at least. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. And I saw on the website of a course that you have titled Web Animation Essentials, CSS Animations and Transitions, that you animated this beautiful cat that's walking across the screen using web technologies. How are these technologies different than how people do 2D animation, for example, for a 2D movie or a studio like Disney or Nickelodeon? Good question. So 
Yeah, that's my uh, web animations and transitions course. You can find an expanded course on front-end masters, by the way. If you have a subscription, you can find the same content there, or you can just head over to my site and find it. But, oh my gosh, I'm going to do the plug thing at courses.rachelneighbors.com. I will have to hand you a nice coupon for your wonderful listeners for all these things. Thank you. And I'll include this information in the show notes of this episode. Oh, brilliant. Wonderful. So in case anyone is wondering, just I'm probably going to go for something like women in tech in all caps. <laughs> now, the uh, <laughs> of course. Yes. So that cat, that is actually Tuna. Tuna was my co-star back when I made comics for a living. And I'm still very good at drawing him. So that walk cycle of him walking, you see him walking across the screen. I made that to showcase CSS animations and transitions at my very first conference talk at CSS DevConf. I think it was 2012. It wasn't the first conference I ever spoke at. I'd spoken on comics and UX at some previous conferences, but this was the conference that finally they were like, we really want you to talk about this thing that you submitted to our CFP and we'll fly you out to Hawaii to talk about it. And I was like, yes, finally, I'm going to a a cascading style sheets conference and I don't have to ask my employers to send me there. Yeah, I kept working for very small companies and they didn't have training budgets and I really wanted to learn. So this was exciting. What I had promised them was that I was going to make, I hadn't actually drawn any of this or, or figured it out. I had just looked at the CSS animations and transitions specification and realized, you know, if I made an image of all these different frames of a walk cycle, I could string them together by moving the image's background position on an element on the page. I could create an animated music video. So that was my CFP and I forgot about it. And then they said, you're accepted. Show us what you can do. I don't know if you're familiar with the tale of Rumpelstiltskin, but I felt like the king had finally said, sure, spin straw into gold. (laughs) So I, I had to live up to that promise. And it turned out that I was right. You could do it. It doesn't live up to the ease with animation that uh, studio animators have. For instance, if we were designing things for the big screen, there are all kinds of wonderful programs for that. Uh, You can use, well, Adobe has Animate, used to be Flash, now it's called Animate. But the big mover and shaker in this space is something called Toon Boom. I know, Toon Boom, it sounds so silly. Yeah. But It's getting quite large. Other companies like Disney for a long time, they built their own programs for artists to draw and color the different individual keyframes. But I didn't have any of that. I had to make each individual frame and then place them out in a a long image uh, at exact distances from one another. And then I had to tell the CSS to move the image at a certain amount over a certain period of time It was very technical, and I had to put a lot of numbers in by hand to my CSS. Mm -hmm. There there was no user interface that made this easy for me. It all had to be calculated in my head. And then when I started moving on to doing more complex animations, I offloaded all those calculations into SAS so that I could let the computer do the math for me. Which they're very good at, actually, so it makes sense. They sure are. Yeah. So part of the motivation for this animation then can be to showcase the capabilities and 
get people more interested in web animation by seeing this relatable cat, I guess, versus just showing a little circle moving across the screen and things like that, right? Absolutely. Up until this point, all of the, like, people knew that you could animate with CSS, but all the demonstrations I'd seen had been like, here's a ball moving across the screen, or I moved a, a red square around. And none of that was exciting. Flash had been gone for a couple of years. You just weren't seeing interactive or animated content. The web was starting to look very much like a really beautiful document, but I still believed in the interactive storytelling capabilities, that infinite canvas that Scott McCloud had mentioned. And I, I was like, no, no, the web is not a book. It's not a series of non-interactive linked documents. It's alive. It can be a living thing. I want to show people that it can be alive. I'm going to show them a living cat. And it worked, you know. CSS animations and transitions have really taken off ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Some of my favorite people in the space, like Sarah Drasner, she, uh, she just joined Microsoft's Azure team as a, a DevRel. But she told me the other day, because she does these amazing things with SVGs and animations, scalable vector graphics and animations on the web. And she told me the other day that that cat, that talk really opened her eyes and made her realize that, oh my gosh, you can do beautiful artistic things with motion and animation on the web today. And knowing that that, that little cat and that talk and, and promoting CSS animations and transitions got people like Sarah Drasner thinking about it, it really makes my heart swell with pride. Yes, and I also follow Sarah Drasner on Twitter and I see this type of animations that she makes. And even one time this person tweeted at her that he had this niece and she was saying oh I'm not interested in technology I don't like it but then he was like oh look at this work from Sarah and then the little girl got so excited about it because she saw these relatable things but also somebody like Sarah doing them so so it's very good to bring things that we normally see in a movie like a Disney movie a Nickelodeon movie with web technologies, I think. I 100% agree. I think the more we show how creative you can get with code, the more likely we are to attract younger people into creating for this space. Mm -hmm. I remember when I made my first website, I did it so I could share my comics. And then I would draw my comics, and then I would scan them, and then I would put them up on GeoCities, right? That's how you shared art in those days. Now, I feel like that all the places for sharing have kind of been created. If you want to share your artwork, you can go on Tumblr or deviantart.com. There's many places where you can share things. You don't have to build a site anymore. So why would a young person want to build with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript when all the platforms are provided for them? My second site was a Drupal site because I wanted to meet people who were like me and liked comics and drawing and manga from Japan. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, wouldn't I just join a Facebook group? So I think creative coding is a really good opportunity for us to onboard and meet the next generation of people creating for the web. And web animation has different sets of areas, like we mentioned working with CSS, JavaScript. There's also frameworks like AngularJS. One area of web animation that I saw that you really like is interaction. Can you explain what interaction means? 
So you could think of the web as a series of connected, non-interactive pages. You open them, you read them, you close them. Maybe, if you're lucky, there's a form on them. You type a comment, hit submit, and your information will be posted. That is a form of interaction, but it's not very responsive to human input. To make people feel like they're really communicating, either with the computer or the network or people on the other side of the computer and the network, you want an instant interaction. You want immediate feedback. So when you hit submit on your comment, maybe there's a little loader that tells you that your comment is being processed and then maybe the comment appears right underneath the, the page that you're looking at. You know, No refresh, no reloading another static document into the viewer. The web is increasingly moving toward this active interaction model. And you're seeing sites that behave more like what we're used to seeing in apps on phones, where you press a button and immediately the page reacts. It doesn't take you to a different page. You're still doing the things you want to do right on that page, and the website is reacting to you. So that is a form of interaction. But another form of interaction could be seen as, well, doing what we're doing right now, recording this podcast via a website. Mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So interaction with people and interaction with systems. You mentioned interactions that we see on phones. And through phones, especially the iPhone, we have experienced different types of design. For example, a few years ago, the design used to mimic a lot the real world. The iBook app would look like bookshelves made of wood, or we would have leather bindings in the calendar. After this, we moved to a flat UI design. What are your thoughts on more realistic looking versus flat design? Excellent question, Adena. Thank you. So what you just described, where everything looks like it came from the real world, that's called skeuomorphism. And it was popularized by Steve Jobs. And it made a lot of sense back at the beginning of the iPhone era. People had never used an iPhone before. And sometimes you had to be a little ham-fisted with your visual metaphors. This is a book. Here is a bookshelf. You can find books on bookshelves. This might stick a little better or train people a little faster. But as people became more accustomed to, you know, bouncing around in a little device that they held in their hand, it became easier for companies like Google to use a flat paradigm to just show people abstracted ideas. You don't need to see a picture of a book. You just need to see the title. And when you press it, a flat wash of color will tell you that you've pressed it. There's another kind of skeuomorphism specifically related to interaction. I don't know that it's been officially titled, but I like to refer to them as active skeuomorphisms. And you see these a lot with gestures, like when you're swiping on the phone. This is a form of animation. When you swipe something to the side or swipe something up or down, that is a UI, a user interface, animation, and they can go a long way to also helping people understand what it is they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, if you swipe something really fast, it moves faster than if you're slowly moves, moving something across the screen. Or maybe when something drops onto the screen, it gives a little bounce as though you dropped it onto a table and it had a little elasticity in it. Now, some of these skeuomorphisms can be really abstract 
And some of them can be right on the nose. I've worked with a lot of them in uh, the past five years on various user interface and motion design systems. And it varies from company to company and what people are trying to do. Mm -hmm. But it's important to keep your interface animations in perspective when you're developing. Yes, and this can also prevent undesired behavior. For example, if we start with a button that looks like you're pressing it, you can prevent people from just keep pressing a submit button or something. And then, I don't know, especially with payments, you can cause multiple payments or things like that. Oh, absolutely. I remember the years when we had to put, don't press this button more than once or you will be charged several times yes. <laughs> next, to, next to forms. Yeah. Exactly. So I am glad that we're able to offer people visual skeuomorphisms now so that they don't mistake this. I love that when we have a user press a button, whether it's with their finger or with their mouse, the button reacts instantly to them. It visually shows them that it's being processed. And if we're very smart, we've grayed it out and made it non-interactable until the transaction has finished and say something really polite to them like, pardon me a moment, I'm processing your request. I love that. I really like the way Domino's Pizza has done this, where you can see oh. how your order is being made. Like, is this little animation <laughs> of they're preparing your pizza, they're packaging it. I really liked it the first time that I saw it, like, four years ago. It's pretty cool. I wonder if they still have it up. Remind me to order a Domino's Pizza. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about your upcoming release of your book titled Animation at Work. I don't want to spoil the entire book here, but there are a few points that I'd like to talk with you. For example, you begin with exploring human perception and animation. What are some of the concepts from human biology that are important when developing web animations? Excellent question. So, uh, yep, that's a, my new book is Animation at Work. It's available as an ebook from abookapart.com. And it's quite affordable. I hope people who are interested in designing user-based... <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm all tongue-tied. I'm so excited to be on here. <laughs> That's okay. If anyone in the audience is interested in designing really awesome user experiences, this is probably the shortest and best introduction you can get to using animations to build those experiences. It's the book I wish I had five years ago. And it gets into the how and the why of animation, not so much the technical implementation. Like, there's no CSS animations and transitions in this book, but there is a lot of neuroscience. And when it comes to neuroscience, humans are amazing. There was this point when I was about, like, I don't know, three years ago, where I kind of tapped out all that I could on the technical side of animation. And I realized either I should move on and learn something else, like, I don't know, Vue.js, or I should dive even deeper. And I chose to dive even deeper. And I started researching how the visual system works. And it's, it's actually amazing. For instance, there is a little bit of processing delay uh, between when your retina responds to visual input and when your brain has finished processing the information. And what happens is everything we see is about 15 milliseconds out of sync. So what our brain does is it does this really wonderful, beautiful, complex guesstimate of what's happening at any given time. Mm -hmm. And once you understand this, suddenly you realize why eyewitness testimonies are 
really un, not necessarily believable. It's possible for people to be led based on that lag and what they think is going to happen next. And you can also see this whenever they do a spoken picture. I don't know how you call it of, for example, a thief. And then when they actually find it, the differences or similarities between how they remember the person. Interesting. I hadn't considered that. <laughs> okay. Well, in this book, you also mention a list of different patterns of web animations. One of your favorite patterns is demonstrations. What is an example of demonstrations? So these patterns aren't just applicable to the web. They also work when you're talking about building software or apps for many different interactions. Okay. And, but I specifically approached these with web examples. And one of my favorites was several years back, there was this card called Only Coin. Well, that was the name of its website. The idea was you get this plastic card and you could put all your credit cards onto the plastic card and you wouldn't need to carry them around anymore. You just have this one card, right? Now, they could have written a lot of copy about that. In fact, soon after Flash died, you noticed that there is this huge uptick in people talking about uh, better content for the web, better copy for the web. Content strategy was a major buzzword. And all this was very good because until then, until this point, people weren't really thinking much about what words they used on the web. But the point is, the point that I'm trying to make, and I do take a while to make them, is that this website had surprisingly little copy on it. They, if you hit print, all you would get would be a couple of headings and uh, like a video. It did have a video at the top of the page, but specifically as you started scrolling down the page, the little card would start going through the motions of what would happen. It showed you many different cards coming into one card. It showed you that card being swiped on a card reader. So it was making this value proposition to you as you were scrolling past these really colorful scenes. It was demonstrating what the card could do and how you would use it. I didn't have to click play. I didn't have to read. I just had to scroll. And scrolling is about the easiest thing people on the web can do. It's funny because you still hear a lot of folks talking about, we got to get all the content above the fold. But users these days are really inclined to start scrolling. They expect it. And there's a whole branch of people designing scrolly telling for the web. This idea that as people scroll through a website, a story is being told to them. So that's one kind of demonstrative animation. As people scrolled through that site, they would have the value proposition of the card demonstrated to them. Other good examples include like data visualization from the New York Times. They can demonstrate to you what data points relate to what information. So I love the storytelling aspect of demonstrative animations. They really appeal to me. So what I want to talk about now is doing animation as part of a team. Some of the work that you did in the past involved just yourself working on it, but a part of the team can have different dynamics or what happens when you leave that team. For example, me as a software engineer, there are these processes in place like coding style guideline or even programmatically, there's this thing called style cop where at the moment when you're compiling code, it'll tell you 
don't use camel case or private variables. You have to capitalize the first letter and things like that. Is there something similar for animation to pass along the same message, particularly if the animation is for a brand or a certain product? Another wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked. Mm -hmm. So one of the hard things about animation is most teams working on the web are split up into groups of developers, designers, and people who focus on user experience. And never the twain show me. No, they, they, they interact a lot. On a good, healthy team, they communicate a lot. But it gets problematic as, well, companies get larger or if for some reason these different teams are silos. I like to say that animation exists at the intersection of these three things, development, design, and user experience. And if you're having any kind of a communication disconnect with any of those three groups, it's going to show up in the animations first. You're going to have designers sending developers movies that the developers don't know how to translate into code, or you're going to have developers just implementing animations willy-nilly because, oh my gosh, it's so easy with these CSS animations and transitions. Or you'll end up with people in user experience who end up creating these really beautiful integrated single-page web apps, but they don't know how to realize them because they're not developers. What needs to happen and what works best is when the three get together and incorporate animation into their own design system. Well, design system in the way I'm using it here is a way of saying it's like a style guide, but not just for like, this is the font size you use and these are the colors you use, although that's a great start. This goes on to include the principles, like this is the feeling we're trying to evoke on this page. These are the timing durations that we use throughout the website. These are the easing curves that we use in our animations. Being able to set these in stone for other designers and developers to riff off of later is very powerful and can help unify your user's experience so they can rely on things feeling and looking a certain way. Documenting patterns, for instance, when people hover over a navigation item or click on it, you want it to be a drop-down versus a modal. Being able to define those patterns as well is very powerful. So you can think of a design system as being a hybrid between both a style guide and a series of uh, interaction patterns. And it's useful to both developers and designers. And that's hopefully where animation will be documented and live for your project. Is this documentation via your own custom framework, for example, Bootstrap was widely used and I would say abused because I used to see it everywhere at some point. So those things limit what you can do in certain animations, right? For example, a drop down. If somebody else on the team includes a drop down, it'll always be animated the same way. Or is there a different type of communicating this style? It depends. I would say that. Twitter Bootstrap was very ham-fisted. It tried to offer people defaults, but instead it offered them conformity. When I worked on Salesforce's Lightning Design System, which you should totally check out if you're thinking, ooh, design systems, those sound useful, you should see what Salesforce did with theirs. They did a great job of adhering to the principle of offer 
offer developers useful defaults that they can then customize to suit their own needs and specific brands. And if they're going to customize that, it's a great idea to provide them with, you know, like standard values that they can use. That's where that timing palette I told you about comes in. Amy Lee, she used to be a, a musician, or you know what, I think she rather, she still is. She came up with the timing values for Salesforce's lightning design system based on uh, musical scales, and it's quite beautiful to see them interacting together. Yes, and also I guess this defaults that you are mentioning matter because there are certain numbers of duration where we can end up hurting somebody's eyes and things like that, right? Well, that's interesting you should mention that. Everyone perceives the world around them slightly differently. That's one of the things I learned when I dove deep with the human visual system. Older users might need to see things happen slower because time, their internal clocks tick a little faster. And people like you and I who look at computers all day well, we can see very fast changes when we're looking right at them. But if they're happening outside our immediate field of vision, they can go unnoticed. It's a really complicated topic to get into in their time remaining. But definitely having guidelines around durations is a good thing to do. Do you think in addition to the age-related differences, also the way technology has evolved has affected duration? I remember there's this famous study that was popularized by the famous user experience bastion of the field, Jacob Nielsen. And this, these times that he popularized, they're 100 milliseconds, one second, and 10 seconds. And for a long time, people in the UX community have held these up as being good measures of durations. The study, however, was actually done back in the 1950s, and it was self-reported. There were no fMRI machines involved. There was no quantifiable data. It was done with a very small population. So these people were interacting, and the idea was if a change happened in 100 milliseconds, they'd still feel connected to the experience. They would feel connect It would feel instantaneous to them. But you had up to one second to play with, right? Mm -hmm. After one second, they'd stop feeling so connected. If they did something and it took like five seconds for something to happen, they felt increasingly detached. And after 10 seconds, they felt like they weren't involved at all, like there was no relation between their input and the output. And the funny thing is, we have data from Google and Bing that shows people dropping off much sooner than one second, something like 300 milliseconds delay in getting people their search results results in a, a massive drop-off of users. So that indicates that this science, this study that was done and popularized for over 50 years, it's outdated. It's no longer relevant. And the information has to be moved on from. Yeah. And especially as we have become more impatient as devices are faster and faster, we come across like you said, a, a slow website or something like that. Absolutely. People expect, with GPUs and CPUs being as fast as they are, they expect near instantaneous results when they interact with the device. We're much less patient than we used to be. I mean, waiting for a modem to dial up to the internet, nobody does that. Well, I mean, some people do that, and I feel very sadly for them. I was one of them for a long time. But uh, for most people, we expect things to be fast and near instantaneous. Last question for people that 
like animation, what are different types of jobs that are in the web animation space? All right. So you're thinking, wow, I really like working with animation. How do I get started with animation on the web? What can I do there? Mm -hmm. Well, first off, I got to tell you, being a web animation expert isn't likely to get you a really cushy job anytime soon. Web animation is a skill, not a job. If you want to get into the design side, you could look into becoming a motion designer. Motion designers tend to work with graphics software like Adobe's After Effects to come up with ideas for how something could look and feel. If you're thinking, I would prefer to work more on the code side of things, Rachel, I would say consider being a part of a prototyping team or even being a UX person. I know a lot of product designers also dip their toes into animation. The idea is if you want to work hands-on with things that move and change on the screen, you want to be early on in the process as opposed to later. So the more you want to work with animation, the earlier you should be working on projects. Well, Rachel, thank you for taking the time to come on the show and talk about your experience in animation. And thank you so much for having me, Adena. This has been a real pleasure. If you like this episode, check out Rachel's courses on CSS animations and transitions and practical cartooning for technical people at courses.rachelneighbors.com. That's courses.rachelneighbors.com. And use promo code WIT10 for a 10% discount. That's promo code WIT10. And you'll get a 10% discount if you use it. Thank you for listening. Bye.